The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. For our last Sunday of the year, we return to the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're following along in a pew Bible, that's page 989, page 989 in the Gospel of Matthew. And appropriately, we end the year at the cross as the Gospel of Matthew has been moving us towards it. As I said a couple Sundays ago, the manger dwells in the shadow of the cross because the Lamb of God has come to offer himself as a sacrifice. What's unique in Matthew is the detail he gives on this final night before the crucifixion. The other gospel writers, John, Luke, Mark, do not give the level of detail that Matthew gives. Matthew focuses on something in particular, and that is the Lamb of God as he is prepared to give himself as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus himself predicted it this way. He came to give his life a ransom for many. But in doing so, Matthew contrasts the persevering faithfulness of Jesus the Christ going to the cross with the betrayal and rejection and abandonment and failure of all of humanity. Indeed, in the verses that were just read for us, we heard that the shepherd would lay down his life For the sheep that scatter. The shock of the gospel is that the shepherd offers himself as the lamb for sheep that have all gone astray, which is what Matthew 26 records. Now, I'll just tell you up front, today is very different than Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, I looked at just four verses with you. Today, I'll look at over 40. (laughs) So hopefully you're ready to follow along. We're going to go through a lot of scripture, but I think we need it in order to understand what Matthew is particularly tracing. And again, I I don't want you to miss it. The faithfulness of God the Son contrasted with the failure of humanity. Here's why that is such important news for you and I. If we don't know ourselves truly, then we won't recognize the wondrous hope there is in Jesus. This has happened in many occasions of human history. Let me give you a couple simple examples. The English author H.G. Wells wrote this in 1937. Can we doubt that presently our human race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace? and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement? What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. H.G. Wells wrote that in A Short History of the World in the year 1937, which turned out to be a terrible prediction. Because what followed for that English writer was World War II. And so here's what he wrote in 1946, several years later, actually the year of his death. He wrote this. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment and fear to a world from which such things seemed banished, has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been called, 
have been played out. (laughs) So here's H.G. Wells, who in 1937 says, we'll achieve more than anybody's ever achieved. And then the year of his death, 1946, said there's no hope. So here we are in Matthew 26. If we don't have a clear grasp of humanity's failure, we'll overestimate who we are. But on the other hand, if we don't have a clear grasp of God's faithful achievement through his son, we'll be hopeless. So the purpose of Matthew 26 and 27 is to show us the betrayal of the Lamb of God so that we can find hope in him if we have the humility to realize what we are apart from him. Now what happened to H.G. Wells in his assessment of humanity at large is actually a great gift if it happens to you personally about yourself. One of the greatest mercies God ever gives us individually is when our denial and our self-deception cracks and we get an accurate view of who we are apart from the grace of God. Here's how this might happen in your own life. Maybe there's this one person in your life that you're really close to that you thought you'd always be really close to and then you finally say that one thing that drives that person away from you. So the person you thought who would never be broken, the relationship is broken. Or you do or see or say something that you never thought you would go do or see or say. Or you stumble across an assessment of yourself made by other people that you had previously been blind to. And it reveals you're not what you thought you were. Now that very painful moment, how you respond to it, will shape you for eternity. In Matthew 26, more than one person betrays Jesus. And they're at the lowest ebb of their history. But they respond to it entirely differently. Because knowing who we are, but also knowing the hope we have in God, shapes us for eternity. So keep that in view as we go through a lot of scripture. Ready? Matthew 26, we're going to pick up in 30 where our brother already read. Here Jesus predicts Peter's denial. 30, they had sung a hymn. After what? Do you remember what they had just done? They just had the Lord's Supper where Jesus had taken Passover and applied it to himself. He's the Lamb of God. And spirits are high. We're singing. We're excited. We're a family. Remember, Jews came from all over Israel and they went to Jerusalem as a family to partake of the the Passover meal. Jesus acted as the head of this family. Here they are as a family. But then he says to them, they'll all fall away, verse 31, and they'll all fall away because of Jesus. Furthermore, what's going to happen is something that scripture alludes to. He says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But now notice, he wants them to have hope. So he predicts his resurrection, verse 32. But after I am raised up, I will go. Notice the contrast is so clear. All the people fall away, but Jesus remains faithful. All the people scatter, but Jesus fulfills the mission and is resurrected indeed. And then they can follow him. Notice he says, I'll go before you. You can follow me because I'll be faithful. Here he's predicting a pattern that scripture alludes to. And on a night that should have been a night of intimacy, he predicts desertion. But Peter and the other disciples don't believe it. Because like H.G. Wells, they've vastly overestimated humanity. 
And so in verse 33, Peter answered him, although they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. 34, Jesus said, truly, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So from I'll never deny you to, no, thrice today. 35, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Notice the phrase, even if. Peter still doesn't think Jesus is going to die. Jesus has predicted that more than four times. But still, no, that can't, that can't be what will happen. But it's not just Peter. Look at the end of verse 35. All the disciples said the same. So here, all humanity is on the cusp of failure, where Jesus is on the cusp of agonizing faithfulness. And that faithfulness would now have a window to beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And talking with him, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, Peter had tried to keep Jesus from going to the cross. He had unwittingly been speaking actually on Satan's behalf. But now that that night has arrived, Jesus himself expresses the deathly sorrow that he faces in the cup. If you're wondering what the cup is, the cup is a common Old Testament metaphor for the wrath of God to be poured out on sin. Here, Jesus correlates the cup of God's righteous wrath to the cross, the place where he will experience God's righteous wrath against sin. This is a passage that's confused and perplexed a lot of Christians over the last couple thousand years. They, they normally struggle with this. How could Jesus, who's so intent on going to the cross, have this moment in the garden where he seems uncertain or, or even prayerful that maybe it wouldn't have to happen that way? But I think we, we are just overthinking something that's really obvious, and that is that Jesus is truly human, not only truly God. Isn't it, um, have you ever been on, on, on a boat or you're, you're at a lake and you see a really high cliff and all these people jumping off it and you think, oh, I can do that until you walk to the top. <laughs> and then it's different than, than the thought before. There are things as humans that we think we can do and then you see it, and then you're there, then the moment comes. Jesus is truly human, so he knows the feeling of terror when facing your own death. But he's also truly God. And in faithfulness, he prays, not as I will, but as you will. And God strengthens him through his prayer. Let me say that again. God strengthens him through his prayer. Listen to Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayer and supplication with loud cry and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus, truly man and truly God, trusted in the Lord through agonizing, wrestling prayer. But that time in prayer empowered him to face the cross. This is not the main application of this passage, but let me just remind you. Did you know that prayer is real? 
And that wrestling of the soul that you do in nights where you're really praying over something is the moment where God empowers us for what he's called us to do. Don't ever underestimate what happens when we pray. But now here in verse 40, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Don't miss the contrast. We already saw it in verse 30 through 35. The shepherd will be faithful. All the sheep will scatter. Matthew's going to show us that over and over and over. God, the son is faithful. All humanity fails. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now don't miss the three that are in the garden with him. Peter, James, and John. Do you remember their recent track record? (laughs) They were at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And do you remember what James and John said with their mom as soon as they got off the mountain? They said, hey, we need to be in positions of prominence in the kingdom, the right hand and the left hand. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? Are you able to drink the cup that I will drink? And do you remember what they said? You bet. Yeah, we're able. And where are they now that it's the night of the cup? They're asleep. And Peter, who had previously protested, is asleep as well. At the pivotal hour, where is humanity? Asleep. While God alone faces the cross. Don't miss the fact that our salvation was not achieved by our assistance. It is Christ alone who is ready to face what needs to be done. Not even his closest and best disciples. This pattern plays out thrice, lest we miss it. So verse 42, again, for a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. 44, so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep, take your rest. But notice what Jesus rose and said after this prayer, see The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now notice 46. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Notice that Jesus is voluntarily facing crucifixion. Here the victor faces death intentionally. And he faces it so that he can rescue those who fell asleep. The sheep that are scattering. And now in verse 47, we'll see betrayal that cuts even closer. While he, notice, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Remember, the Jewish religious leaders in jealousy wanted to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the reaction of the crowd. And so they found Judas, a willing betrayer, who would give them a private setting where they could betray Jesus without the crowd seeing it. And this is the setting now. And Judas kisses Jesus to identify him. That might seem strange to you because you might think, well, why would Jesus need to be identified? But, but, but don't forget, before photography, even celebrity faces weren't well recognized. So they actually need Judas to identify Jesus so that the whole group of clubs and swords can find him. 
Now that they find Jesus through the most hypocritical and shameful kiss in history, notice Jesus' response in verse 50. Jesus said to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from the other gospels that's Peter and Jesus replaced the ear. Verse 52, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's 144,000 angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Notice again how clear the gospel is. Jesus is willingly going to the cross to fulfill the scripture. Verse 55, at that hour Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But yet all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then notice, then all the disciples left him and fled. The shepherd giving his life for the scattering sheep. God, faithful, humanity, a failure. And yet the scriptures are being fulfilled. And the denial and the failure of humanity continues. Look down now in verse 69, please. We're going to jump down to verse 69 and pick up there because that's where the thread of this continues. So verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Verse 71, and when Peter went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Peter's denials now ratchet up. Verse 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. Now think of the contrast. Jesus willingly identifies himself when he knows it means death. Peter refuses to relate to Jesus, though it's just a couple servant girls. Notice how the verse closes. Immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now this is one of the saddest accounts of a believer in all of the Bible. It reminds us that even true believers can fail miserably. That true Christians can hit the absolute bottom. And yet, as the passage continues, it shows that even the failure of true Christians need not be the last word. And that contrast is first shown by showing us Judas. So continue with me into chapter 27. 
In verse 1 and 2, we see that when morning came, the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death and led him away to Pilate. But now we see another person and how they respond to their betrayal of Jesus. And so that's Judas, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Now we have to pause here, and I have to expose a little bit of Greek to you. The Greek word for repentance is metanoeo. That is not the word used here. This is metalamathia, which does not mean to repent, but it means to have remorse. You may have a translation in front of you that says seized with remorse. That's a very good translation. But even the ESV's changed his mind is, is fairly good as well. The point is what Judas felt is not repentance. What Judas felt is temporary remorse that led to despair. Notice how the verse continues. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But he at this point only has despair. One scholar, New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg, writes this. Judas is seized with remorse. This rare word in the New Testament means simply a change of mind or a feeling of regret that falls considerably short of full-fledged repentance. He continues, Judas follows, Judas does acknowledge his sin and Jesus' innocence, but he does not demonstrate the true mark of genuine repentance, appropriate corrective Action. He confesses to the wrong group of people and then gives up on life. To whom does Judas confess? The Jewish religious leaders. But who is Judas betrayed? The one person he wouldn't go to. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 says, There's a godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation. But there's also a worldly grief that produces death. Both people have grief. One leads to salvation. The other leads to death. Peter has grief. Judas has grief. One leads to salvation. One leads to death. Because in the Bible, repentance is more than just a feeling of regret or remorse. The hallmark of regret is what will happen to me? The hallmark of repentance is, how could I do that to Jesus? The difference is eternal. So now notice the end of verse 4. They said to Judas, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Verse 5, notice the Jewish religious leaders are so morally corrupt that when someone's trying to get right, they don't even know what to tell them to do. Verse 5, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Self-pity, self-punishment are not repentance. Regret and remorse are not fully repentance. This is the grief that leads to death. And the Jewish religious leaders are shown to be even more corrupt because verse 6, when the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. That's a term for non-Jews who are residents in the area. 
Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Unclean money buys an unclean place for unclean people, is how it works out. Judas's guilt is unassuaged as he never goes to the one person who can atone for his sin. And therefore, the pattern that Jeremiah predicts is fulfilled again. A rejection of the shepherd and the destruction of a nation. Here's how the Bible explains it. When we do something that is genuinely wrong, the Bible calls it sin. The way we feel after we sin, the Bible calls guilt And the only way to assuage guilt is for sin to be atoned. But we can't atone our own sin. So therefore, we'll always feel guilty until the one person who can atone our sin atones it. But the one person who could have atoned Judas' sin is the person he wouldn't go to. So let me give you three principles, and then I'm going to close with four Applications about repentance. So if you're a note taker, I don't think we got these in the bulletin in time. So three principles might be in the bulletin, but the four applications I know are not. So the first three principles. These are the big principles Matthew's showing us in this passage. First, only God never fails. So Jesus, despite the agony of his soul in Gethsemane, does in fact go to the cross and give himself as the Lamb of God. Only God never fails, which means by implication number two, only God can save because humanity fails. Only God can save because humanity fails. When humanity says, I can drink the cup, we fall asleep. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, the way God's been using this passage in my life this week, here's something that I was reminded of. The truth is, if I'm being very honest, Most of the best things that have happened in my life happened when I was, so to speak, sleeping. I didn't have a whole lot to do with them. (laughs) The Lord was just gracious, apart from me, or sometimes in spite of me. Let that mental picture sink into you over the, the next week. Here's Jesus agonizing, and here's Peter, James, and John asleep. Does not the Bible say that Jesus still intercedes at the right hand of the Father for us? Think of how many times we're sleeping through life and only because of Jesus' intercession we are kept by the Father. This is God's grace to us through the one faithful person. Let all glory be to him. But this also means very good news for you and I. You see, apart from God, our condition is hopeless. But because of God, there's hope for anyone. Hope was available for Judas. Hope was received by Peter. Now the implication of that is in Matthew. Because Judas, though he hangs himself in despair, Peter weeps bitterly in genuine repentance. But it's made explicit in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John ends in sort of an interesting way. Right after it says, these things have been written so that you would believe on the name of the Son of God and have life in his name. You would think that's going to be the end of the book, but it isn't. There's another chapter. In that final chapter... Peter says in verse 3 of John 21, I'm going fishing. 
which is actually has the same connotation we have today. We're like, I'm done with this. I'm out of here. I'm going fishing. And when Peter says, I'm done, I'm going fishing, I'm out of here, and he's out on the boat, who comes to stand at the shore? Jesus. And when Peter sees him, and the boat is still a ways offshore, Peter takes off his overcoat, jumps in the water, and swims. He can't even wait for the boat to get to shore. Peter's the first one there. And when Peter gets there, Peter and Jesus have a conversation. And Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Why does he ask him three times? Because Peter had betrayed Jesus three times. And at the end of each one, Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And it's hurtful for him to hear. It's hard to do. But what's happening in that moment? Repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. See, what Peter does is what Judas failed to do. He goes to Jesus. And in doing so, he receives the forgiveness that only Jesus can give. So I opened the sermon by saying, if we overestimate humanity, we will be hopeless. If we overestimate ourselves, there's going to be that moment where God in his mercy reveals we're a lot worse than we wanted to admit. So what do we do when that moment comes in our life? And now we're ready to give four specific answers. Here they are. Number one. How, do we, how are we eternally shaped for the better even when we realize how far we've fallen? Number one, true repentance is not self-pitying, nor is it self-punishing. The answer is we repent, but true repentance is not self-pitying, nor is it self-punishing. Self-pitying is I'm a victim. If you knew all the stuff I was going through, if you knew how bad my parents are, how hard my year is, then you would understand. And self-punishing is kind of like, you know, like the Rocky montage where he's been knocked down, but then he's going to like work out in the snow and, and at the end he's going to triumph because he's going to rebuild himself. You see, self-pitying and self-punishing have something in common. They're both about preserving my image. If I self-pity, then I can say, see, I'm really not that bad. It's everybody else's fault. If I self-punish, then I can say, see, I brought myself back up. Instead, we should just weep bitterly. (laughs) Number two, true repentance should not be confused with mere regret or remorse. To simply have grief is not true repentance. True repentance will feel Pain, but it will be a sweet pain because it'll quickly move from a broken heart to the beauty of Christ. If you don't move up to the beauty of Christ, all you have is despair. Number three, true repentance goes to the right person when confessing our wrong. And the right person is always ultimately God. Judas went to the Jewish religious leaders. What are they going to do? Instead, he should have gone to the person he betrayed. By the way, when we won't go to the person we've wronged, we try to treat our confession as personal catharsis or therapy. When actually it's supposed to be an issue of what I have done is wrong in God's sight. And I need to be right in his sight. But number four, and this one's the encouraging one, true repentance is based on hope in God not on personal reform. 
True repentance is based on hope in God, not on personal reform. And that means true repentance always goes to the cross. Here's the key question. Does the cross give you hope? Can I quote Gandhi? He wrote in his autobiography, I could accept Jesus as a martyr and embodiment of sacrifice or even a divine teacher. But Gandhi continued, Jesus' death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, I could never accept. If the cross is only a nice example, then there's no hope in it. (laughs) But praise God what Paul said of the cross. Galatians 6 verse 14. But far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Or as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us being saved, it is the power of God. Or as we sing now, O to see my name written in the wounds For through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. One through your selfless love. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. The reason there's hope is not because of personal reform in us, but because of the death of the shepherd for scattered, failed sheep. So in Matthew 26 and 27, see the faithful God who did for us what we could never do, which frees you from trying to preserve self-image and finding true forgiveness and acceptance through the cross. Praise God, this was not the end of Peter's story. And by the, God, and by the book of Acts, he's one of the most faithful, useful disciples of the Lord, and so can be anyone. Because the power is the cross. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, enable us by grace to live a life of repentance. A life where we turn from the horror of our sin with honesty to the hope of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. May we not put our hope in our own image or in our own ability May we not find despair because we refuse to return to the one person who could actually save. But may we, Lord, look up away from ourselves and look up to the hill of Calvary and there see God the Son who faithfully fulfilled what all of us have failed at and to hear him say, it is finished and to know that he's risen victoriously. So God, I pray for forgiveness at the cross for all of us. May we rejoice in it anew. But if someone hasn't yet come to Christ, may they not leave in despair like Judas, but instead realize that though we are much worse than we would probably ever want to publicly admit, there is more grace and salvation than we had any right to hope. And it's found in your son. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, 
go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e b c r a l e i g h dot com.